This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. What's the matter? Doesn't that sound exciting to you? Luckily, UBC students have lots of on-campus dining options. The Pendulum Restaurant, your source for fresh dishes made in-house. The Pendulum boasts a large selection of vegan dishes, a comfortable atmosphere, and tasty breakfasts. On sunny days, you can also enjoy the licensed patio. Conveniently located next to the pit, the Pendulum is open seven days a week. This business is owned and operated by the AMS, your student society. Hello out there. Welcome to another edition of The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I've got a jam-packed show for you today, mostly full of push festival phantasmagorica. Yes, I've got lots of interviews and reviews to share today, so I will get to that right after the Zola's continue their fantastic song, song Marlena Kamikaze. They're playing tonight at the Biltmore Cabaret. Head out there to check them out. You're like a ghost to me You're like a ghost to me a ghost to me on every corner you're like a ghost to me on every man's arm i know you're somewhere in the somewhere in the city you're like a ghost to me you're like a ghost to me you're like a ghost to me on every corner you're like a ghost to me 
And as that track fades out, yes, that, those are the Zolas, Zachary Gray and Tom. Oh gosh, I'm going to butcher this last name. Dobrzanski? Dobrzanski? I really hope that's somewhere close to the truth. But maybe Arts Report listeners, you will remember, Zachary Gray was in here just last year. He was playing the accompaniment to Billy Bishop Goes to War here on UBC campus as his father was the man who penned that very iconic Canadian play oh so many years ago. I believe it was the 25th anniversary. Um, So that was an amazing presentation. And Zach Gray was an amazing person to talk to here in studio at CITR. And now him and his uh, compatriot are uh, headlining the Zolas. They're launching their new disc at the Biltmore Cabaret tonight. Tickets are still available at Red Cat Records and Zulu. Speaking of which, Red Cat Records is finding itself a new home. I'm sure many of you out there, you music lovers, you know this. Um, so they will be closed tomorrow. That's Thursday, January 28th and Friday, January 29th. Old Red Cat will be closed and their new location at 4332 Main Street. So it's still same general area, just uh, a new zip code, somewhat. <laughs> They'll be opening up on thirtieth on the 30th with a, a big launch party. There's probably going to be giveaways and music and lots of fun stuff. So head on down to the new Red Cat Records this Saturday. That's January 30th. And that's the last I'm going to speak about music for a moment. All right, let's move on to some of the Push Festival. Best before 2010. The festival this year has just been an amazing, outstanding uh, collaboration of works from near and afar. Um, Not only have I had the privilege of speaking to many of the artists, but if you read any of the local rags or any of the national rags, for example, the Globe and Mail, has had spectacular coverage of this year's festival, as it should, since this is one of Canada's premier festivals that works with collaborative artists that aren't using the capital F, capital A fine art definition to make creative and wonderful and mind-boggling things. So, speaking of which... Um, James Long is one of those many artists who is presenting this year at the festival. Uh, You may remember him from Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut, which actually was featured at the festival two years ago. Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut is one of the most notorious theater pieces, actually, to come out of Vancouver in recent memory. The story goes like this. In the summer of 2005, James Long salvaged seven photo albums and travel journals from an alley near his East Vancouver home. The collection, complete with detailed captions and letters, documents a family's history between 1950 and 1987. And the collection includes everything from birth notices to a full eulogy for the archivist's toy Pomeranian, Mandy. Two years later... Uh, James Long and his team of collaborators traveled in search of the origins of these books and ran into some serious questions surrounding the legality and morality of working with found materials. Now, the Push Festival 2010 has decided to bring back this presentation, Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut, which is currently on Western tour in Canada. So... Earlier yesterday, I was able to speak with James Long on the phone to talk to him about how this presentation of Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut is different from the one Vancouver audiences saw two years ago, and what in fact has happened with all the legal turmoil, and the questions and stories that surround Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut. Here, I hope you enjoy the conversation. 
So the first thing I wanted to say is welcome back to the Foot Push Festival. Thank you. With uh, Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut. Um, what does it feel like to be back here again two years later? It, it's great. You know, we're um, theater replacement. We're, yeah, we're always, we seem to be at push quite a bit just because it, uh, it makes a lot of sense for our company. So we beg and plead for Norma to let us join in every year since mm. we, we like to tour. It's part of our mandate to tour as much as we can. Right. So this is one of the opportunities for us in Vancouver to be actually able to show our work off to an international crowd mm-hmm. that comes in, and we get to see international work, which is good. And it's great to come back with Clark and I because I think it's better. I think oh. we need it better. Well, that goes right into my next question, which was going to be since audience, push audiences or Vancouver audiences have last seen Clark and I, has it changed, or how has it changed, and how have you changed as an artist? Yes, it has changed. You know, when we first did it uh, in 2008, we were forced through a number of legal proceedings, which I imagine we'll get to, to, um, to kind of rewrite it in four weeks, hmm. frantically. So since I got to rewrite it and perform it both, I, um, I think I was a little bit freaked out for the first couple nights of doing it because I still didn't know if I knew all the words I was supposed right. to say because I was changing them as I was going. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have a lot of time to reflect on it. It was a real panic. So um, two months after that, we did it again in Toronto, and we cut out a whole bunch of excess garbage, I think, stuff that wasn't really necessary inside the show but didn't really make the chopping blocks. We just didn't have the time. Right. And I also got to relax a little bit mm-hmm. and start to enjoy it. It's a direct address show. I talked to the audience the entire time. Of course. Before, I was kind of my eyes rolling back and my head freaked out. Now I can actually see them and, and enjoy their presence, and mm-hmm. hopefully I'm a little more enjoyable, too. Mm-hmm. I hope. Well, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't going to ask you specifically about the, the legal proceedings, but now uh. that you've mentioned it, I'm, 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 I was sort of concerned that it might still... Well, let's hope two years later it's not still in the works, but, I mean, people who have been following the show will know that um, the show came out of you discovering a suitcase in 2005, I believe it was? Yes, that's right. In, in East Vancouver, and then your company, uh, along with all your co-conspirators, who are some of whom are featured in the production of Clark and mm-hmm. I Somewhere in Connecticut, created the, the piece, the production that is now on stage out of these found objects, along with some other interesting tales and ideas. Um, and then the family who owned that um, suitcase to begin with started to cause problems. Do you want to take the story from there? I can, yeah. Um, I think what happened was basically, in a nutshell, it's a big misunderstanding. I think what we were trying to do originally with the albums was not necessarily tell the family story that was in the photo album, that were in the photo album. Mm-hmm. But when we ran into them, kind of by chance, but by design as well. We went kind of sniffing around further than we needed to sniff around. Um, I, Borat had just been released that year. There was all sorts of things out there. There was, I think, a, a general sense that maybe people aren't to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And these, we traveled into the interior of D.C. to a pretty small town and said, hi, we're here from Vancouver. We've got your family history in our hands. We've had it for two years, and we're making a show about it, uh, about the album." can we go ahead? And, you know, at first they said okay. The woman said okay that we spoke to the representative. Right. And then I think the family had a day or two to think about it and said, you know what, I don't think it's such a good idea. 
But we we weren't never we were never going to actually tell the stories in the books. Right. <laughs> we were more interested in the photographs themselves, just because they sort of sparked a certain feeling of nostalgia, or they were um, interestingly composed, or however. But it all got twisted around to a lot of confusions, and um, lawsuits were threatened. And we finally, in January, about a couple weeks before the show went up, we were able to settle outside of court, not for any kind of money, a little bit of money, but not very much, mm-hmm. and um, and just a better understanding that we weren't here to take advantage of you folks. And then we found some interesting ways to deal with the problem, which I will not talk about because that Fair comes enough. up in the show. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, I mean, I want as many people to get out there to see the show as possible, but certainly the idea of a protected history and, and the way that stories are created and the idea of what memories are and where ideas and, and fictions of our lot that tell our lives stories are very much at play in the piece. Um, it must have been... I don't. I can't imagine what the phone. What it must have been like for you, the, the moment that you realized that you might have to change the entire production weeks before it was to hit the stage. Well, and the, that was one of the worst parts. Was that, and this I kind of throw back on the lawyer that they hired <laughs> because he's a snake. He was a bit of a snake, and I think they realized it afterwards too. He was. Um, he sent the letter to me, the email with the letter attached to threatening to sue on Christmas Eve oh. at 3 p.m. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've got to do all that. And so the feeling was, to get back to that, the feeling was absolute dread because we had a show that was up. We had been working on for two years. It was up in four weeks. And we were being told right now that if we were going to do it, we could be sued for, really, when it all added up, hundreds of thousands of dollars, what yeah. they would try to sue us for. Mm-hmm. But they can't. They weren't going to be able to necessarily, but just the fact of as soon as you walk into a court, it's $10,000 later. Yeah. So the dread was definite. And actually, we had a surprise. I I phoned up my co-conspirator at Rumble Productions, uh, Craig Hall, Mm -hmm. and we phoned up Norman Armour at the Push Festival and said, you might want to come over and meet with us because when you get back to your office, you're going to find a letter from a lawyer threatening to sue you, too, at Push. Yep. we got to make some decisions. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. And for that first two weeks until we sort of took a big breath and met these folks, it was brutal. Hmm. Well, it's very exciting that the, the revamped, uh, con- or perhaps closer to the original production, is it now, is returning to the Push Festival? You know, the I'm trying to think the original production, the original thing we were chasing with this show, we never really found... And I don't know if we were going to find it, to tell you the truth. It was it was a lot more complicated. It was, in some ways, simpler, but a lot more complicated conceptually, which was we were just experience, uh, experimenting with the idea of memory mm. and the idea of the photograph. Right. And we weren't as interested in the questions of appropriation mm. that eventually we got into once, once we were forced into them. But the original show we were working on, it... <laughs> It was slowly forming, mm-hmm. but I think it would have taken a lot more time or a large rethink to make it actually interesting to an audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we found it fascinating. Yeah. We are standing in front of these stolen photographs telling personal stories, and it's quite possible it was a good show. It would have been there. <laughs> we just never found out because... Right. Everything else took over, and then suddenly we had this Law and Order episode with this show. <laughs> got very excited, and we said, "Oh, let's just run with this one for a while." Mm-hmm. And it became a little—I don't. There's a lot of people who wouldn't agree with me, but I think it's actually has a much 
stronger narrative than some of our other work. There's a much clearer arc to it, in fact, that we found the albums, we got into trouble, we had to make some decisions, as opposed to the other one was, um, I see this photograph and I think this. Right. So the show you're getting this year is a tighter, cleaner version of the one we showed at Push, mm -hmm. which might be closer to the original in some ways, but it still is that high drama of legal <laughs> proceedings is the parts of it anyway. Fair enough. I guess um, I'm wondering, since, since part of your mandate is to travel with your shows, mm -hmm. th this show specifically has traveled across Canada and to other countries as well, I believe. Are, are you still surprised about the reception and the questions that people bring to the show or after the show or ask about the show and how fascinating people find it or what, what it brings yeah, you know, out in audiences? Well, in fact, it's only toured in Canada so far, and oh. I think there's a reason for that is I think it's a really, in a strange way, a really Canadian work because the photographs that we do show inside of the show are, um, you know, this is something that comes up with every talk back we do with everyone is that people look at these photographs and they're com coming from wherever they are in Canada. Mm -hmm. And they're recognizing themselves in these photographs consistently or, or mm -hmm. s scenarios and situations yeah. and whether it's that sort of, iconic Ontario cottage shot that we might have or that prairie photo from 1962 that pops up. These things are super Canadian. Mm -hmm. For the for anyone who's grown up in Canada, I think, and um, has seen these things, if they've ever been on a road trip in Canada, they've seen these things. If they've ever looked through their own albums or their friends' photo albums, depending on where they're from, of course, and what when their parents immigrated here, these images pop up consistently so that's something that does surprise me over and over again is how wherever we are people are recognizing these images and saying you know you could just photoshop my face onto one of those people and that's my cousin ernie right. at their cottage in alberta or whatever it is mm -hmm. um the one question that always pops up still and we still don't know the answer and we're not looking for it anymore <laughs> is how these things got out in the alley mm how they were ever thrown away. Right. And there's a couple leads we do have, but I'm just, I'm not interested in chasing them after <laughs> the last mm -hmm. bit of trouble we got into. So well, fair enough. That. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm dying to ask how the family, how what, what it was like to meet the family in that original, before the legal action happened, but when you actually had a chance, or whether it was a representative or yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, we... We met the family. We, uh, when we went out to this place in the interior where a lot of the photographs were taken, we just threw a couple quick connections and some of them sought out and some of them not. We ended up on the phone with someone in Vancouver that was related mm. to them. They had a, uh, her sister-in-law lived in the area. Her sister-in-law had just lost her husband oh. about two months before we showed up. And this is where we still hang our heads in shame, is that we had traveled quite a distance. We had worked on the show for quite a long time and was due in a few months. And we were starting to feel really kind of guilty that we had these photo albums. And I was on the phone with this widow. And she said, you know, maybe it's not a great time to visit because I've just lost my husband and we're harvesting all these grapes down to a little winery. Mm -hmm. And I asked twice. And I said, please? Can we come? And can I, cause I just want to see your face. And 
and say, this is what we have. Can we continue? Yeah. And she was such a kind, wonderful, morning individual. She said, okay, mm-hmm. come. Mm-hmm. And we went, and that's kind of, I think we would have had questions to answer anyway mm-hmm. with the fact that we had made contact and now they were curious. But I think it's the fact that I went to her home and went into her kitchen and pulled out these books and showed her pictures of her, her recently deceased husband and herself from a zillion years ago. That's what really upset her son, who was the one who phoned me a couple of days later and told me exactly what he thought of me. Right. Um, so that was the, the nature the meeting was beautiful you know and we left and she gave us a bottle of wine she <laughs> said, you know what go ahead go go for it do it yeah um, just send them back to me when you're done and then I think I don't know what happened after that but I think the son stepped in and said you know what I don't think that's cool yeah and that's when the, the new kinds of meetings began right. which were <laughs> a couple on the phone and then I sent them all back, and then the next one was a letter from a lawyer. And then, mm-hmm. and the meeting that followed after was really, really nice. Finally, after all the lawyers were kind of taken out of the picture, we said, can you just come down to our office, or can we go and meet you? We'll show you what we have. We'll tell you what you're do- we're doing, and maybe we can kind of stop this throwing money around thing because it's stupid. Nobody has any. Right. And then we did have that meeting, and it was lovely. You know, they were good people, <laughs> and we're good people, I think, mm-hmm. with bad decisions on occasion. Yeah. Well, certainly the idea of um, of a history that is captured in photos, and how, I mean, how does one lay claim to a history unless it's through those mementos and and the things that you carry forth with you, whether it's oral storytelling or those little bits and yep. pieces that you have? I yeah. guess my my last question for you was going to be along this journey of yours and along with your company, you with Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut, you must have amassed your own uh, group of memories and mementos and photographs that you've taken along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, are there some that you can share, or is it, have you thought of this, of your own uh, cataloging or history taking in a different way since this? You know, it's funny, because, you know, the sad irony in this is I'm so private with my photographs. <laughs> private with images of myself. I hate it when people take my photographs and mm. slap on a Facebook page and without my permission. It's like, how dare you do that? Mm-hmm. Which is the, re- the preposterous irony in all of this. We do. We, you know, we keep a really good document. We do, and, I've, and it has... Well, I just, you just consider all the different ways that people are, are recording their histories. Now, these, these images that we did find... They're, they're impeccably put together by this woman who put them all together mm-hmm. in these photo albums, including captions. And there's these two travel journals that she also kept that are absolutely stunning in their detail of these trips around the States and these, this honeymoon trip. And, and these things don't exist in the same way anymore, and they never will. Mm-hmm. You know, she, these photographs were developed, and these photographs were taken with great care and some of these photographs were like somebody had a zit on their cheek or, or they mm-hmm. were taken from a bad angle, yet they were still developed because right. that was the only option they had. Mm-hmm. It, it, I had a daughter 14 months ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we're consciously trying to create photo albums because of this because mm-hmm. it is such a beautiful record, and it's so much nicer to look at than pulling out my hard drive. Right. And I don't know if we'll keep it up. 
you know, casting people do that for the first couple of years. They, they put their little first year and second year photo albums together and then they disappear. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there's there's something really, really important that could be being lost. And it almost justifies my finding it in my own little personal view. Mm-hmm. But I did save these things. And now they're all back with the family, so they have them. But um, they're important little documents, Absolutely. really important little documents. Absolutely. Any chance the family will come, or someone from the family will be coming to see the new performance at the Push Festival this year? I don't know if they'll come. I think they came last time. I'm not really sure. I wear a a rabbit head for a lot of the show. Yes. So I can't really see, but I know um, there was a group of people in, in the corner of one of the shows that I could have sworn were them. Mm. But I didn't, I wasn't able to really pick them out properly. I don't know. Mm. You know, I, I think maybe they're happy. I don't know if they went to theater in the first place. And I don't know if they really cared to come and see this one. And it might be best that we just... Leave it be. Leave it be. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, fair so. enough. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Oh, absolute pleasure. I really look forward to showing this again. I hope you can come see That was my conversation with James Long, one of the many people behind Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut, which is hitting the stage, not tonight, but tomorrow night at Performance Works. There are only three nights of performance of performances of Clark and I somewhere in Connecticut running at, as part of the Push Festival. Uh, so make sure you get down there. There are a few tickets left, so make sure you get in there, but they're going fast. And perhaps even by the time this this airs, they will be gone, so make sure you check it out. And James wasn't kidding when he says that he is dressed in a full-on rabbit costume throughout most of the play. It's true. If you visit the Push Festival website, which is pushfestival.ca, and click on the Clark and I Somewhere in Connecticut link, you will see pictures of James in the rabbit suit and in the play and you'll you can get a sense of what is in store for you at performance works this week all right well without further ado i'm going to hit us with a psa but before that i'm going to play a little bit of john ray fletcher who will be on stage at the vogue theater this weekend playing alongside the great lake swimmers john ray is a bc native and it's great that he's putting it he's put out a new album which i believe is titled oh maria Therefore, why not play that title track? This is Maria on CITR 101.9 FM. Change was gonna come and she came and she came 
Stewie. Uh, hey. Hey there. So, uh, it's been 24 hours. Got my money? Oh, I, you know what? Just give me till next Friday. I'll have it for you. Oh. Oh, that's funny. I could have sworn I said have it today. Yeah, I don't have it. Sorry. Oh, well, all right then. Mmm, that's good, OJ. <laughs> ah! Yeah, that hurt? Ah! That hurt? What the hell? Yeah, ah! it feels so good. Thank you to all the donors who pledged their financial support during the CITR on-air fun drive. We are moved by your generosity, and thank you for enabling us to purchase new equipment and improve our programming. Do remember to stop by the station, pay your pledges, and pick up your prizes. We look forward to meeting you anytime between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on weekdays. Thank you again for your amazing response. Listen to our happy voices on the air, happier after we purchase new equipment for our studios. Thanks again. You got till 5 o'clock, you hear me? You got till 5 o'clock. You freaking psychopath! Uh, clean yourself up. Welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Tracy Fuller. And to continue with my push festival coverage out here on the west coast of Canada, I have a review from my fabulous dance critic, Melanie Cooksdorf. But before I get to that, I'd like to uh, air Paul Paul Zerbeer, who is my uh, wonderful theatre critic. He headed out to see the new production of Romeo and Juliet, which is on stage here at UBC right now. Um, Many of you might remember that last week we talked to uh, Pavel Liska from the Nature Theatre of Oklahoma, and they also did a remake of Romeo and Juliet, thinking along the lines of storytelling. And just when you thought that Romeo and Juliet couldn't be invented ever again, here on stage, right on UBC campus, is a stellar Um, a stellar performance, a stellar reinterpretation of what Romeo and Juliet can and and very well should look like in 2010. Paul has given his review right here, and just to preempt his review, there are $20 rush tickets for students to see this show here on campus. The rest of the run is entirely sold out, so you cannot see it. But for those lucky students who want to uh, get in last minute, there are $10 rush seats available at the door, so head on down to the theater, and here is Paul with his review. Theatre UBC is currently presenting a unique and entertaining production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Not to be missed, Romeo and Juliet, directed by Catriona Ledger, plays at the UBC Telestudio Theatre at UBC until January 30th. Over the past few years, I've seen many versions of Romeo and Juliet, but this production is by far one of the most imaginatively staged and delightfully performed. Catriona Ledger, the play's director and MFA directing student, states in discussing the play, Theatre allows all participants, performers and observers the pleasure to have fun. When we are transported by a piece of good theater, it is as if we are children playing a game. I certainly experienced a great deal of play and fun on opening night. Costuming and character embodies elements of French melodrama, a European clown tradition, busking, and even the cinema. This play really feels like a a live event with the embodiment of a lot of playful theatricality, rather than a crusty piece of Elizabethan drama that often seems to get dragged around the stage by less skilled director. The gender role reversals provided some welcome alteration to what have become rather predictable roles, while the mix of fashion traditions borrowed from the 1880s and the 1930s add burlesque comic elements and an overall feeling of freshness to the play. The actors in this production also bring some uniquely and lively interpretations to the betrayal of well-known characters. 
Barbara Kozicki creates a sympathetic yet powerful sister Lawrence. Her character acts with believable authority and her decisions come not as a premeditated action, which is often seen in lesser performances, but from the actors living the character as she, she struggles to find some resolution for the lovers. Maria Luisa Alvarez plays a strong and commanding Lady, Lady Capulet. Monticea Ladner creates an entertaining, self-centered and passionate nurse. Ben Whipple brings the thoughtful, proud and carefree Mercutio to the stage. David Kay creates a, a somewhat less muscular but an energetic and intensely vivid Tybalt. And Jameson Parquette delivers a believable and occasionally inspiring Romeo. But Megan Chinoski creates an amazing, childlike, playful, and ultimately captivating Juliet. Chinoski breathes life into each transitional moment of Juliet's short and intensely romantic romance with Romeo. Shakespeare's packed so many peaks and valleys in Juliet's emotional journey from teen child to young wife that it is a tour de force for a young actor to express all the thoughts and feelings that Juliet goes through. Megan Chinoski captures most of them and by doing so makes the audience feel the joys and sorrows of a young girl's romantic love. Wrapping this play together is a bright, playful and majestic set by Ana Louise Espinosa and helping the play to resonate through all its emotional tones is the music and sounds of Michelle Cutler and Patrick Pennyfather. If any of you haven't seen a really sharp, imaginative and playful Shakespearean play, go see Romeo and Juliet. And for those of you who think you've already seen Romeo and Juliet, go see this production. You'll be delighted when you experience all that you've been missing. Again, UBC's captivating and memorable production of Romeo and Juliet is on nightly at the Telestudio Theatre at UBC until January 30th. For the Arts Report, this is Paul Zerbeer. Thanks, as always, to Paul. And just a reminder once again that there are $10 student tickets available at the door at the Chan Centre at the Telestudio Theatre. So if you're a student of UBC and you haven't yet picked up your tickets to this version of Romeo and Juliet, head on down. It's a show not to be missed. And now for something completely different. Last week, the Push Festival opened with The Show Must Go On at the brand new Woodward's Theatre. It's a controversial show. In Montreal, people in the audience walked out. Melanie Cooksdorf gives her take. Hello, I'm Melanie Cooksdorf, and I'm here to talk about the opening of the Push Festival from last week. It was a show called The Show Must Go On, and it was at the brand new Woodward's Theatre. They'd still been laying the seats hours before the show began on their opening night, and that it was all still a bit of a construction site, but the new SFU Woodward seems pretty spectacular, and as someone who went to the SFU Contemporary Arts program, I I feel a little bit jealous that I had to be in trailers that were leaking and, and rat-infested. But as a friend of mine who went to the show with me mentioned, she feels a little bit like a soldier who got through something. So the others, you know, they're going to have this great facility, which I'm really excited about. But they just, you know, they won't have that feeling of accomplishment. But anyway, so I'm really happy about... Um, what's happening with Woodward's. It seems pretty cool. And the theater was big, so there's lots of big shows that can go in there in the Faye and Milton Wong Experimental Theater. 
So the show that I went to see was by Jerome Bell, a well-known French choreographer, and this was sort of his best-known piece. He made it in 2001. That's when it was debuted. So it's not a new piece, and he didn't actually come. He sent his cronies to do his work for him because the piece itself is quite simple. It's not a complex choreography. I don't even know whether I would call it um, strict theater. I felt like it was kind of dance. Maybe somebody would call it dance theater, but that even that would be the wrong word. In the description, they say Jerome Bell is no, well known for his provocative, ironic, and anti-theatrical productions. And that's what was happening in this show. They had cast of 20 local dancer, artists, all sorts of different people. They all did really funny things, like reenacting that moment. Titanic. Kate Winslet's at the prow of the ship <laughs> and having uh, this anti-Leonardo DiCaprio running their hands down their partner <laughs> so it really it was really funny especially because you know every partnership on the stage was not exactly Kate and Leonardo and that happened and then a lot of simple things happened and a lot of waiting for things to happen which I found kind of delicious, but the women behind me could not stand it. So the music was played throughout the piece. Different, well-known pieces of music. Kind of like some sort of radio mix. And sometimes they just played the music and nothing would happen. That is, the lights would be down, or the lights would be then the lights would come up on the stage, but nobody would come on stage. And you just had to wait a bit. But the women behind me, and I don't think they were alone, instantly, like, so quickly became uncomfortable. And were like, what is this? This is ridiculous. What's going on here? And they felt so uncomfortable by not having something happen right away, which was interesting, because to me, maybe I'm, I'm used to seeing art, and I'm sort of enjoying just being in the theater and listening to the music and waiting to see what happens. But I think this this waiting that was happening with the audience, they really couldn't take it. And a friend of mine who also saw the show on a different night, she pointed out that the audience did the exact same thing the night she was there as the night I was there, which was that they ended up singing along to songs. One of them being The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. They would play just the part where it said The Sound of Silence, and then the music would cut out. You know, the idea was possibly that we could actually hear s the sound of silence, but people s were singing along spontaneously. And also, they started dancing. Like, at one point... The cast members came to the front of the stage and just stood and stared out at the audience while the police's Don't Stand So Close to Me was playing. And people started dancing, dancing as the, the performers were looking at them. And it was such a weird response. And apparently this happened every night. So it kind of makes me feel like audiences are awfully, awfully predictable. Like, human beings were awfully predictable. I know that in journalism, they teach you when you're doing an interview to wait three seconds if you want someone to keep talking. And in that silence, 
they will feel compelled to fill it. So they will just keep talking. And I feel like that's what happened with this piece, is that people were so uncomfortable with waiting for something to happen, for, for moments of silence, because stuff did happen. You know, even private dancer, the sound guy came up and did a private dance. And still, the audience couldn't help but do something. Although I have to say that one of the most beautiful moments, whether or not we should have been doing something, uh, whether or not we did break that contract with, between the audience and the performers, whether or not that was bad, when they played John Lennon's Imagine, the whole audience sang, and it was in the dark, and they opened up their cell phones, which apparently didn't happen every night. And everybody swayed their cell phone lights back and forth, and everybody sang, and they sang like they meant it. And I've never felt so bonded to an audience before. And that was one of the most beautiful moments I've felt. And I really did love the piece because of and despite the audience and the women behind me that were talking the entire time about how they wished they were at home and wondering if this one person was male or female and how beautiful this other actor was, but goodness, how ridiculous this piece was. It, it's interesting how impatient we are and how we can't just sit down sometimes and wait for the show to go on. So thanks very much for listening. This is Melanie Cooksdorf signing off for CITR. Love it or hate it, shows like The Show Must Go On have helped make the Push Festival so exceptional this year and previous years. If you haven't seen anything at the Push Festival yet, go. The festival runs until February 6th, and now... And now I'm going to have to cut in here because I was about to play a uh, fantastic version of the show much go on uh, the amazing Freddie Mercury uh, piece. But um, I'm running out of time. So I want to make sure I get in all the content that I had slated for this week. So rather than listening to Jim Broadbent's fantastic voice here, I will give you a taste of it right now. Let's get to, oh, oh, here. How about some of this? I don't know how many of you loved that movie as much as I did. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. But, um, yes, the show must go on. It has finished its run at this year's Push Festival. Thanks so much to Melanie Cooksdorf for going out to see it and for sharing with us that amazing experience. I think that idea of raising your cell phones rather than lighters has totally taken over almost every performance medium, and perhaps we will see much more of it in the future, especially with the iPad just coming out today. Ooh, now I'm... I'm all on topic and current. Oh, the iPad. Oh, for those of you who just bought an iPhone, you are sorely, sorely out of luck, my friends. You are now two years behind the trends once again, even though you thought you had just caught up. Oh, oh Apple. Why do you continue to do this to us? Anyways... Now for something completely different. Nick Panu, my amazing arts report contributor, uh, did an interview with Brian Calvert, one of the producers slash actors for the theater slash multimedia event Project 2012, which is opening at the Tipper Restaurant tomorrow night. That's January 28th. And the show is a roller coaster ride through the theories and science surrounding our world's supposed end on the 12th day of the 12th month of the Ooh, 
the 20th day of the 12th month of the 2012th year. I believe that's correct. Let's see what Nick has brought back for us today. Sitting here with Brian Kelvert, uh, writer, director, producer, and actor, uh, performer, and winner uh, for the annual Eddie Awards. Uh, won uh, first prize, uh, cash prize of $10,000, and also um, host for uh, Novus TV's uh, 2010-101, involves with... Project Love, Project Love 2, and uh, WTF, uh, current show Project 2012, running at the Tipper Restaurant on uh, Kingsway in Victoria. Thanks for taking the time to uh, do this interview. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Project 2012 actually starts January 29th. This is a fourth in the series for the project. First project was uh, Project Love. How did this whole series get started and, and what was the reason and, and idea behind it? Uh, the project series was uh, was the brainchild of Monica Mustelier, who is uh, a colleague of mine, an actress in town, uh, who most recently played uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s wife uh, opposite him in Hardwired, which is kind of a cool movie. Um, and so she was kind of, a, we, we kind of ran into each other serendipitously. We had the same agent. We were at an audition and uh, we started to struck up a conversation and, and she was telling me about a script that she had written and I said, oh, I'd love to read it sometime. And she pulled it right out of her bag, all <laughs> like that, kind of put me on the spot there to read it. Uh, and I did. And we never actually pursued that. But what we did was started to kind of collaborate on other things and talk about other projects we wanted to, to do. And she had started telling me about this, this project series that she wanted to start, which was, which was really just a matter of creating art, just giving people a venue and an outlet to to do the things so that it didn't have to sit as a, as a script in your bag anymore. It could actually come to life for an audience, uh, which is twofold. One, for the audience to enjoy, but also to test your work and, and test your ability. So um, she came up with this um, probably, I guess, the summer of 2008, and then we had the first project series uh, production, which is Project Love, in November of 2008. And now we're on our fourth one, which is Project 2012. The Tipper Restaurant on Kingsway in Victoria, uh, it's a very intimate setting. Yeah, the owner, Colin, uh, opened probably about the same time that Monica was getting the idea of, of wanting to just collaborate and try to bring in a bunch of artists into her circle and, and start producing more and actually making stuff happen. And she came across this place because she was living in the area and got talking to Colin, who's the owner. And he's fantastically supportive of artists in general. And not necessarily only uh, performance artists. They have a, a series of musicians. They have stand-up comedy at the Tipper, uh, but also visual artists. They have a, they have a whole host of, of local artwork uh, throughout the restaurant and then the review room in the back. Uh, so he's he's so wants it to be a place where people can do exactly what we're doing, which is just come, express themselves artistically, and gives you a venue to do it. And he's been really good about um, giving access for a very reasonable rate. <laughs> We've done these four shows at the Tipper, uh, which is extremely intimate. The Tipper is nice because it's it's kind of a... it's. You don't have to act the same as you would in a traditional theater production because everyone is right there. So the subtle things that, that normally would be lost in a bigger venue are actually picked up. And we've tried to use the space as much as we could. In Project Love 1 and 2, um, we actually used the entire theater as a bar 
for one of the characters, which was the thread throughout the entire thing, uh, which gave us a chance to do stage changes and stuff. Um, so he would actually walk around within the audience and be cleaning tables, and he was talking to his uh, deceased wife and stuff, but right right there with, with the audience. So that was a really, really cool. And, and based on the feedback we got from... From, uh, from the audience, they, they enjoyed that too. And for Project 2012 as well, my, myself and uh, Ryan Smith, who's, um, who's the young writer in town, who's worked with us on the other project series to uh, sort of put all this together. When we were originally thinking of what to do for our next project series, we started thinking of, of, of something to do with uh, something heavy, something to do with a big tragedy or, or event. Uh, and it was funny because we, the day we were meeting, Monica, Ryan and I, it was actually September 11th. Uh, this past September, and we kind of looked at each other and thought, no, maybe it's a little, maybe we can't touch that yet. We wanted to, to stay with the the hills and valleys, uh, the emotional hills and valleys of the of the of the production. Um, we we knew we wanted to get to something that wasn't quite as uh, personal as September 11th was to a lot of people. So we started thinking of, of what else was out there, and we started spitting around the idea of 2012. And you could just see Ryan's wheels turning right off the bat, and, and both of us had these, in, almost instantly had these ideas for sketches we wanted to do. Uh, and then, boom, we just we just went to it. And, and within about a week, we came back, and we had well, more material than we ended up using. Um, that all, all geared around this, this 2012. Some of them humorous and some of them quite serious. So. The performance is, uh, is very unique. It's a mixture of uh, live and uh, pre-recorded. It was kind of a natural blend. And from there we thought, yeah, instead of having a... And not that normal theater is boring, but it seems like in the sort of the YouTube uh, generation, all of the, the stuff and stimulus and people kind of like 10 seconds is as much as anybody can focus, it seems. <laughs> yeah. We thought it's a great idea to bring a new audience to live performance by having video, which is what most people are accustomed to these days. So integrating these two things. And so it was received really well. And we thought, well, that's okay. That's one of the, the mainstays. That's one of the cornerstones of the project series is that we're going to always investigate video and live stuff together on the same thing and even in WTF we brought a musician in uh, to add another another medium there too so we've been hosting that the ticket purchase through Monica's website so it's uh, Monica Mustelier uh, M-O-N-I-C-A M-U-S-T-E-L-I-E-R dot com and it'll just take you to her landing page and you'll see a, a little um a little menu selection called Project Series, and then it comes up with uh, ticks right there. So you can buy in advance for all six nights, which we recommend because our last shows have sold out on the Friday and Saturday nights, so they're usually the first ones to go. So yeah, if you're interested, come. It's only ten bucks. Uh, show starts at eight, and uh, yeah, we've had some pretty satisfied customers. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> It starts uh, next Thursday, January 28th, and we expanded it to a second weekend this time. So it runs 28th, 29th, 30th, and February 4th, 5th, and 6th. Uh, listeners, we were just talking to writer, director, producer, actor, Brian Calvert, who is uh, writing, producing, and acting in Project 2012 uh, that is going to be uh, screening uh, the first screening taking place at the Tipper Restaurant on uh, Kingsway in Victoria this coming Thursday, January 28th, and uh, running uh, for two weeks. Uh, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Nick. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. And my thanks to Nick as well for contributing that amazing report. That was, as Nick said, Brian Calvert, who's doing... Tw- 
Project 2012, which opens at the Tipper Restaurant on Kingsway tomorrow night. Now, look at me. I've, I've actually gotten through all the content that I expected to play today. Sure, I have more stuff. But all the really important stuff, all the, all the stuff that had to be aired today, got on the air. And so I'm feeling really good about that. So um, in order to uh, commemorate this man- mo- moment and end the show on a good note today, I'm going to play We Are the City's Time Wasted. They're having their album released uh, at the Biltmore Cabaret. Ooh, I guess tonight. No, tonight? Well, they're playing again on the 29th. Um, in Canmore. Oh, I guess they are tonight. Fantastic. Well, they're launching the new album tonight. And um, so from that new album, here's Time Wasted on CITR 101.9 FM. If you want to get in touch with me, you can always write me at arts at CITR.ca. And thanks to all the amazing Push Festival artists who are in town and have contributed their time to this show. I uh, urge you all to get out to see Push Festival events along with Romeo and Juliet here on campus. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. And I'll see you on the other side. CITR 101.9 presents the Ice Cream Social at the Pit Pub. Ice Cream Social, your favorite weekly night of 50s and 60s dance tunes, is coming to UBC. 